The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. I'm your host, Tito Ambio, from the School of Media and Communication at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Taking care of the environment in a country that has one of the highest levels of biodiversity in the world, like Indonesia, is a massive challenge. COVID-19 has added a layer to this challenge. On top of the pandemic, however, Indonesia has also been facing political and cultural problems caused by democratic regressions and post-truth politics that are directly but also indirectly causing even more damage to the environment. What is the connection between post-truth politics, democratic regressions, and the protection of the environment in Indonesia? In Talking Indonesia this week, we have Dr. Dirk Tomsa, an Associate Professor of Politics at La Trobe University in Melbourne. And also, of course, Dirk is a former host. Uh, so welcome back, Dirk. Um, and my first question to Dirk is, what's the big picture about how COVID-19 has impacted the environment around the world? I start perhaps, if you if you call it a bigger picture, I start perhaps with the, the even bigger picture, not just COVID in Indonesia, but globally. Um, there's, a, there's been a fair bit of research being done on this, how the sudden halt of um, air travel, how the, you know, the implications for trade or the, the reduction in global trade, how that has affected the economy. So we now have some numbers basically for 2020. There's been uh, quite a few reports that came out last year, earlier this year, that show that the sort of the expectation that because of this massive ramifications of the pandemic on trade, on travel, etc., on tourism, that this would lead to a dramatic decline in global emissions, for example. We now know that this decline while it was there. It was only very brief in early 2020, very temporary, and bounced back basically to pre-COVID levels fairly quickly. Um, so that does tell you that, you know, while this is not a new threat, the old threat has not disappeared uh, because of COVID. Um, it was briefly halted, but it didn't necessarily give rise to a rethink in what we could do differently. Um, Instead, we've seen that in various countries um, that over the last few years during the pandemic that have had various natural disasters, for example, that the conversation around climate change has changed, but irrespectively of what the pandemic did to this. Um, so in Indonesia, it's, it's a bit similar. Um, there's a website called the Climate Action Tracker, which estimated that in Indonesia, emissions probably decreased to around 5-6% in 2020 compared to levels before the pandemic, but that this rebounded uh, fairly quickly. Countries like Indonesia um, received lots of revenue from tourism, of course. Um, there, the, the drop in tourism to some extent briefly helped um, in the reduction of waste um, and pollution. Um, but now that Indonesia is trying to re-stimulate its economy, it's also, of course, banking on tourism again. So we're expecting that this will quickly go up again. But what's interesting is there that, at least in terms of rhetoric, we've seen a few new 
um, ideas or responses perhaps. Uh, for example, Sandiaga Uno, the minister in charge of this, um, has said that Indonesia wants to move away from mass tourism and wants to sort of shift its emphasis on ecotourism and sports tourism. So more targeted towards smaller groups that perhaps nevertheless bring in big money, um, but not the sign of mass tourism that has this massive impact on the environment. What we did see in the beginning in some places was that, for example, because of the drop in tourism, um, communities that relied on money from ecotourism um, no longer saw the environment as a source of income as they used to before. So um, exploitation in terms of hunting, poaching, um, chopping down uh, tracts of forest, etc., um, increased in some places. So there is the clear link between the environment and the income for small communities. Um, that was yeah, a direct result of the economic hardship caused by the pandemic that we did see. Um, and so if there is a yeah, if there is indeed now a push for greater emphasis on tourism and using tourism perhaps for creating greater awareness for the environment, that might be a good thing that might come out of it. Um, and obviously, COVID, the pandemic has been happening for more than two years now. So the Indonesian government should have enough time to form a response to it. What kind of regulatory responses have we seen from the Indonesian government? In terms of the environmental framework, Quite a bit was being done on this in the years before the pandemic. Um, we've had um, a few new laws being passed um, quite a while ago now, the Environment Law in 2009, um, a few others for marine protection. Um, there was an update to the list of endangered species in Indonesia. Um, so the framework was actually improved uh, before the pandemic. With the pandemic and its massive impact on Indonesia's economy and the government's um, preoccupation with um, economic growth, with infrastructure growth, etc. Um, it was almost inevitable that they would respond to the, um, the consequences of the pandemic by watering down those regulations because they were seen as a hindrance to economic growth. And so, yeah, in 2020 or 2019, 2020, we saw various changes in the institutional framework that are widely believed um, to have detrimental consequences for the environment. Um, they're not necessarily directly targeted at the environment, but the, the broader framework that they address um, will have implications. So the first one was in 2019, the changes to the, uh, the revisions to the law about the Anti-Corruption Commission. It weakened the Anti-Corruption Commission. Uh, the commission had been quite active in pursuing corruption in the forestry sector, for example. Uh, in the past, and now that it's generally, you know, widely assumed or believed to have lost its teeth, it's unlikely to be such a strong corrective to the seem seemingly unrestricted power of, you know, um, timber and palm oil companies. Um, so that was one worrying development in the regulatory framework. And the other two worth mentioning here in 2020 were the so-called omnibus law, the job creation law that removed various environmental regulations, made it much easier um, for big companies to basically get away without environmental oversight, or removed input from local communities, um, environmental impact assessments were, uh, will be affected by this. 
Um, and in the same year, also a new mining law was passed um, that followed the same kind of um, direction, basically making it easier for big companies to exploit the natural environment. What you just said leads to a question here about what people have seen in Indonesia as democratic um, regression. I mean, people like Thomas Power, Yves Warburton, Jamie Davidson and yourself, um, you've been seeing this democratic um, regression. And because you mentioned, um, you know, economic um, priorities for the Indonesian government, what's the connection here between democratic regression that we're seeing in Indonesia? And how is that impacting environmental problems in Indonesia? Um, There's a long tradition in the academic literature that believes that democracy is inherently better suited to protect the environment. Um, there's a there's a number of sort of ideational reasons for that. Uh, one is that democracies might offer better protection for individual and collective rights, and that you know this rights approach includes the right of ordinary people and citizens to a clean and healthy environment, a right to a healthy life. And for that, you know, you need to protect the environment. Um, there's another um, reason linked to the sort of the broader institutional framework that democracies respect the rule of law and therefore provide a safer environment for everyone who wants to protect the yeah, a safer environment for everyone who wants to protect the natural environment um, where the rule of law is not being upheld it's much more difficult uh, for activists to expose uh, wrongdoings and um, therefore democracies are supposedly better set up for the environment a third um, factor is that the you know the upholding of political rights such as freedom of association uh, freedom of assembly um, is conducive to activists forming organizations to enhance their mobilizational power their lobbying power um, again in an authoritarian context where it's difficult to form political organizations it's difficult to for, for environmentalists, basically, to develop that lobbying power. Um, there's a few other things. Um, democratic countries um, hold, supposedly, free and fair elections and thus um, have an opportunity to put the environment on the m- map for voters. And where you have um, high levels of environmental awareness, um, then you might see um, a growth in environmental dis- discourse through elections. And yeah, if you look around at some recent elections in the developed world, whether that's Germany, where the Greens did very well in the last election, or just recently Australia, then yeah, you have two examples where you can say, yes, look, these are issues that matter to a lot of citizens, and therefore they will put pressure on political actors to actually do something about it by voting for um, environmental-oriented candidates or parties. Um, at the same time, there's also plenty of counter-arguments. Um, if we stick with elections, first of all, just like elections might bring out the best in um, in voters in you know pushing for better environmental protections, um, at other times the opposite might be true. Um, voters maybe might not care about the environment, might be fed up with the doom and gloom about the environment, may prioritize other things, economic concerns, for instance, um, and therefore not elect. Um, governments that care about the environment but do the opposite and then you get the counter effect of that basically um so that's one of the key counter arguments and the other one is that in democracies political processes often lengthy consultation takes time um, lots of different stakeholders get a say and that sort of leads to prolonged you know 
sometimes seemingly endless um, debates and negotiations and doesn't lead to action. And in that vein, some um, academics have now looked at authoritarian countries that have had um, yeah, some remarkable um, successes in changing their environmental frameworks. Um, China and Singapore are often listed as examples where a so-called um, authoritarian environmentalism is taking hold, where governments that don't need to consult with citizens, with other stakeholders, have decided that we need to act on the environment and they will do it and they will do it quickly. Um, so from a, yeah, from a normative perspective, um, that's of course questionable. There's lots of questions about the process of how this is being done. Um, and also it then completely depends on how these governments view the environment. So if you take the example from Singapore, Singapore is a very green city, um, has lots of green technology, clean air, <laughs> unless there's haze coming over from Indonesia. Um, but Singapore has very little natural space, right? Um, there's very little um, wild places left in Singapore. Um, so it's a very instrumental view of nature um, that the Singaporean government is pursuing. Um, it can rightly point to um, yeah, some remarkable achievements, but it's not the kind of state of nature that conservationists use, usually want to protect. So while the broader literature usually looks tends, tends to look at this debate in rather dichotomous terms, either democracies or authoritarian regimes, I was interested in these slow processes that are unfolding in many countries like Brazil, like Indonesia, both are probably still democratic. Um, I would say Indonesia certainly is. Brazil I know a bit less about, but probably also still is broadly. Um, or we could take the United States under Donald Trump, um, which if you look at democracy indexes, you know, suffered immensely in democratic quality. And at the same time, the environmental protection regime was systematically um, eroded by Trump. Um, so I was looking at the Indonesian case from that perspective. How has this gradual erosion of democratic quality in Indonesia affected the environment? And while I don't have data on outcomes yet, I, do, uh, I did find a lot of instances where the broader context in which the environmental conservation discourse is happening um, has worsened. Um, that's partly because of what I said, the, the passing of these laws, you know, the, be it the, um, the mining law or the, the omnibus law, the weakening of the KPK. It's also because the Jokowi government has been extremely sensitive to criticism um, in recent years, has been going quite aggressively after its critics, whether that be from the sort of religious Islamist camp or whether that's democracy activists, or whether that's environmentalists who have been criticizing um, the regime's infrastructure drive. And the space to speak out against the Jokowi government has yeah, narrowed quite substantially. You mentioned various colleagues of mine who have written about this. Um, this is not good news for the environmental movement, which is already struggling to get the message across um, in a society where, you know, environmental awareness is relatively low. Many people do prioritize the economy. We saw that during the pandemic. Um, and now the space for environmental activists yeah, is becoming increasingly narrow, makes it increasingly hard um, to argue and to lobby for conservation and protection outcomes. 
in the last few years, we, we might see that this is sort of decreasing a bit now, but in the last few years, it, Indonesian politics was um, quite strongly influenced, some say dominated by this um, discourse about the place of religion and public life. Um, the Islamists are challenging Jokowi. Jokowi was becoming increasingly aggressive in pushing for the Panchasila and uh, the you know Indonesian heritage of um, pluralism. And within this discourse, the environment has suffered in a sense that Jacobi felt it apparently necessary to resort to yeah some sort of political strategies um, or visions you might call it um, that are quite reminiscent of previous authoritarian regimes, specifically the Suharto era. Um, if Warburton has uh, written about the developmentalism um, that Jacobi is pursuing, and what's under underlying this is that yeah nature is conceptualized as a commodity that is there to be exploited um, not to be preserved um, the more and the quicker the better for economic growth if you look at some of the projects that um, Jacobi has been pursuing whether that's food estate programs or whether that's infrastructure drive like trans what's it called trans Sumatra highway or trans Kalimantan highway um, you know roads that open up previously and and inaccessible or remote areas. This will bring economic growth, maybe, to some communities, but what it will almost certainly bring also um, is destruction of the environment around it, especially in yeah, Sumatra and Kalimantan, where we have the largest tracts of tropical rainforest in Indonesia. You recently commissioned a survey about wildlife protection, um, and your findings are not good for for the animals. Can you tell us a little bit about the survey? Because I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about what you mentioned before about you know the changing of uh, political system and cultures in Indonesia. Um, but let's bring in the survey so we have another uh, element here that we can talk about. Yeah, so the survey, uh, to be honest, was not exclusively about wildlife, but I made it a part of it because I was interested in this, um, yeah, in these attitudes and linkage to some service that have been done by others before. Um, the broader context in which this, uh, in which I conducted the survey, this was in November 2020, because at that time, you know, there was the debate of, um, well, not, not so much a debate, but, you know, it was widely accepted that the coronavirus had originated on a wet food market in China, um, was probably transmitted in all likelihood trans transmitted by animals onto humans, um, animals that were being sold on this market. And the link to Indonesia here is that Indonesia has markets in which wildlife is trafficked as well. Um, and in addition, they have specific dedicated, uh, special dedicated bird markets, you know, where um, huge numbers of birds are being sold um, for the um, the pet bird trade. So you have two dimensions, so you have or three dimensions perhaps to it. So one is basically the sale of sort of um, animals and animal products for traditional medicine. Um, then you have the pet, um, the, the cage bird trade. And there's of course also the international trafficking. Right? A lot of um, wildlife trafficking goes through Indonesia, <clears throat> partly from Africa, the Middle East into um, Vietnam and China but also um, animals that are taken out of the forests in Indonesia being trafficked uh, to other countries. So I was yeah curious to to see to what extent 
or, or what kind of views um, people have therefore about these markets and the trading, the trafficking of animals, the consumption of um, bushmeat and animals and so on. What, what, what surprised me was how few people um, were worried about the, you know, the, the sale of wild animals on markets and even more so that very few, well, not very few, but how few people um, were worried that some of these animals are endangered, some critically endangered. So it pointed to you know, fairly low levels of environmental awareness. And yeah, so for someone who cares about biodiversity, who cares about um, the state of the natural environment in Indonesia, um, I think yeah, this is this is something where um, that that should be addressed. Um, there are no, of course, no easy easy answers to this. How this could be done? Um, colleague from colleagues from Western Australia have done some work on the school curriculum, for example, how these things could be addressed. Um, but yeah, this is. Um, this is all in its infancy. Let's talk about post-truth politics, because, you know, now we're dealing with this fact where, you know, I'm sure Indonesians like myself, we can see the environmental destruction that's happening in Indonesia. We, I know we can also see the, yeah, the challenges with the bird markets and especially after COVID, we should be more aware of this, but your survey is showing that people are not making the connection. Can we explain this through the framework of post-truth politics at all? Is there a connection between post-truth politics, the cultures that it, uh, that it is creating, and the lack of awareness about environmental protection in Indonesia? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think there is a connection, but what exactly the connection is, um, is perhaps more difficult to answer. I mean, one connection is certainly, I think, that um, that scientists and conservationists have long tried to persuade policymakers and the public um, by, you know, of the need for conservation through the presentation of facts, what, what they call facts, right? So they present numbers, figures, empirical data um, about, you know, um, biodiversity loss, about deforestation, um, about climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, etc., etc. And the hope is that once people see these numbers, they will act in response because they translate these numbers into you know, a threat perception, basically. In the era that we now live in, um, you know, any fact or any truth is easily countered by constructed or manufactured counter-narratives, um, the post-truth, um, the lies, <laughs> you might say. Um, but, you know, but, but of course, we can also say that, that all this data that is produced by science, you know, is, of course, con constantly being contested, has always been. But nevertheless, that, you know, there are certain baselines, right, that are widely accepted and where you should hope that this might inform policy, right? These days, and we've seen that in Indonesia in the last few years uh, during the pandemic, for example, I think um, it's become in, in some areas at least, more and more difficult to get through with empirical or scientific facts. Um, politics is often dominated by other interests rather than listening to science. I mean, that was has been the case, of, of course, for a long time. But now, um, if we do want to see it through the post-truth lens, um, it's amplified by 
the way these narratives that are spread by government, but also by other lobby groups, business groups, um, other organizations that have an interest in not conserving the environment, um, they have just completely different means of spreading disinformation um, through social media um, in particular, but you know, also through other means. And yeah, in that climate, it's increasingly difficult for conservationists to find the right message. Um, some even question whether they should in fact even use or rely on things like social media to try to spread their message because social media in itself is, you know, of course, directly linked, some say responsible for the spread of the disinformation. So it's pointless to even try to use this medium to get this message across. But then what other alternative is there? right? <laughs> and, um, you know, we talk about disinformation, but there's also the bigger kind of anti-science narratives. And here I'm remembering um, an opinion piece written by Ahmad Arif, a journalist from Compass, who basically argues that, you know, well, Islamism and populism in Indonesia have created this situation where a religion becomes one of the factors in um, this in this anti-science narrative. Did you see that as well? Yeah, it, it is um, certainly um, a fact that um, that some members of government, for example, have preferred to resort to religion rather than science when coming up with, you know, with potential remedies um, against COVID-19. That um, the Indonesian health minister who was in charge at the beginning of the pandemic didn't last very long, partly because of um, these kinds of statements that he made. Um, but I think individuals aside, the broader trend that you are referring to here, this um, this ideational battle between, I referred to this earlier already, um, between the nationalist, pluralist, Panchasila-based narrative that the Jokowi government is pushing and the counter-narrative from the Islamists who want a greater role for religion and politics who um, basically say that, you know, Jokowi is not representing their interests, is not representing the interests of Islam, etc. Um, in this climate, science is, you know, is a victim on many fronts. Um, for example, in schools, I was saying earlier, um, there's a study about the school curriculum and how little there is about the environment in the Indonesian curriculum. Um, and if you look at recent initiatives to reform the Indonesian curriculum, um, one emphasis that was, I think, put in place in was it 2019 or 2020 was the strengthening of character education, right? Where morality, nationalism, religiosity, so basically these two competing narratives um, are being integrated into the curriculum more strongly to, you know, to make better citizens in the eyes of the government, um, to mold a particular religiosity, so not the Islamist religiosity, but still a devout religiosity, where the Jokowi government can sort of say that, you know, we are not anti-Islam, we're not anti-religion, we put this into our um, curriculum, but alongside, you know, virtues like, yeah, you know, morality, um, nationalism, etc. Um, where, where you bring in something like this into the curriculum, you remove space for other things, and it changes the narrative on what's important, right? So rather than science, you stress other kinds of values. Um, 
So for a curriculum that was already not big on the environment and science before, this recent change was yeah was worrying. Um, so this is at the school level, but also if you go higher up into universities and research, um, we saw the formation of the new um, research agency, BRIN, um, which from the start appeared to be politicized. Um, and in that context, it's been feared. It's too early to say whether it will actually materialize, but it's certainly widely feared that research will increasingly be politicized again in the interests of pushing a nationalist narrative that Indonesia needs to rid itself from the influence of foreign researchers who impose their sort of um, colonial attitudes towards Indonesian researchers. I, while I can see where they're coming from in terms of collaboration, in terms of, you know, um, change, exchange of data, um, I don't think that's the best way of, you know, of addressing the various scientific problems that Indonesia is facing. But also there's there's been some good news, right? Um, I, well, <laughs> at least according to the Minister of Environment and Forestry, uh, they said the rates of deforestation in Indonesia has dropped by 75% in 2020 from 2019. Is there anything that we can learn from that success at all? <laughs> uh, too early to say, I would say. <laughs> Because much of that, not all of that, actually the trend towards lower deforestation had started before the pandemic. But because it went through the pandemic, I think we have to wait and see whether or not figures will go back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, because there's almost certainly a relation to the pandemic because there was much less demand for timber and palm oil. So there was less need for deforestation, uh, for, for just market-driven. Um, so that's one reason to be a bit skeptical. But because the trend began before, um, as in the reduction in deforestation rates, I think there might be there might be something happening there. I think, I mean, Indonesia, despite all the nationalist rhetoric, is still probably, at least to some extent, um, you know, um, engaged in international agreements. Um, it's responding to international pressure. Um, not everyone wants to um, buy unsustainably produced palm oil anymore. Um, so I think, again, it, it is linked into market pressures, um, but it is also, I think, into the sort of, uh, yeah, more, what's the right word? Um, and perhaps the, the need for the government to respond to its reputation, its international reputation. Some domestic pressures are coming through as well. Um, for example, one thing which the government stressed as a as an explanation for the reduced deforestation was that its social forestry program it has been successful in giving communities um, greater access to the forests and greater authority um, to decide what to do with the land and. Again, I think um, I've, I've read some some other research about this that is not quite as rosy and positive as the government's interpretation, um, saying that there are also various social forestry areas where communities have basically said, OK, we can use this now. Let's use it for palm oil. Um, but I, th I think in some cases, at least, um, this, um, this greater involvement of local communities um, has been a positive that they can 
you know pursue alternatives to um, growing just crops for the um, you know for the international market for the global market um, and yeah there's a few other things um, Indonesia put in that goes back now more than 10 years they, they put in place a moratorium on granting logging concessions on new areas um, that's that was made permanent by Jokowi so again I think partly in response to international pressure um, but also perhaps um, partly yeah, in response to some domestic interests. Um, this looks reasonably good now. Um, of course, it has loopholes. Um, one one big question about all this is, of course, how the Indonesian government actually defines what a forest is. It's a bit different from what conservationists would uh, define as a forest because the Indonesian government, I think, includes plantations as forest areas. Um, but nevertheless, I think I think the overall trend in terms of deforestation has been positive now for, for about three or four years. But we'll have to see that after the pandemic-induced economic hardship, whether now that we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic sometime soon, um, whether it will pick up again. That you know that the response will be all oh, we need to make up for lost time or whether it will actually re-trigger or trigger now a rethink and say, okay, we started this before. This was also linked, um, forgot to mention, it was also linked to the, the massive forest fires in 2015 um, that prompted apparently a rethink from Jacoby, who was embarrassed about the international pressure that he faced in response to this. So do we go back to this, that the government says, look, we, we put a few measures in place that seem to have worked in 2016, 2017, 2018, let's stick with that. Or will they go back and say, okay, economic growth has slumped during the pandemic. We need to catch up as quickly as possible. So let's just issue a whole lot of new logging and mining and palm oil concessions. So yeah, therefore a bit early to say, but certainly as yeah, as you say, some positive signs at least. Um, finally, what do you think needs to happen in Indonesia if we want to tackle all these environmental challenges that you've mentioned? Yeah, one would be what I just said that I hope they will not go back to okay, very you know, just issuing lots of lots of um, uh, concessions now again. Um, so one would be yeah, go back to these some of these init initial steps that were taken, improve the regulatory framework, and then next step, implement it better. Um, try to close the loopholes. That's difficult now because now that we have, you know, just since 2020, we have the omnibus law and we've got the mining law. Basically, some of these good provisions have already been superseded by damaging um, new laws. So, yeah, what would need to happen? Well, um, revise the omnibus law and strengthen the environmental regulations back to the levels where they were before or even better. Um, that's one thing that would need to happen, but that's obviously very unlikely. And that's, of course, linked to the, you know, the broader structure of political economy of Indonesia, because the omnibus law is largely a result of pressure from the wealthiest conglomerates in Indonesia. Um, they are very deeply enmeshed with the government, as we all know. As long as this persists, as long as this model of political economy with this very close fusion of economic and political interest persists, given that many of these um, super wealthy oligarchs, as they're usually called, have you know strong interests in coal, in you know in mining, in palm oil, in timber. Um, as long as that persists, 
everything else will only be sort of you know trying to improve on the margins but yes some inroads would need to be taken there it seems quite unlikely at the moment so that outlook is perhaps not so positive the other one would be um as i said uh, you know the democratic decline would need to be reversed in order to provide broader space again for the conservationist community um, so that they can also find perhaps new partners in getting their message across conservation ngos usually tend to have fairly small audiences small lobbies um, so some efforts have been made in the last few years for example to um, bring in to reach out to religious organizations, moderate religious organizations. We've seen during the pandemic that the word of um, Islamic preachers carries a lot of weight, sometimes more than politicians, often more than politicians. So if conservationists could try to tap into this resource and um, use religious teachings perhaps to, um, you know, to spread their message in different ways, that might be something um, how things might improve. As I said, um, local communities, I think, need to be involved. They need to see the value of preserving the um, environment. As long as this narrative persists, currently pushed quite hard by the government, as long as this narrative persists that the environment is, you know, there to be exploited, um, then you know, communities will respond to that by doing just that, by chopping down forests and planting more and more crops. Um, but if, for example, what yeah Santiago Uno I mentioned him earlier on in the podcast what he said if perhaps there's a shift to more ecologically informed tourism um, to greener technologies um, then perhaps local communities can see greater value in um, yeah, pursuing sustainable projects and the last thing I would say would yeah environmental awareness would need to be strengthened probably it, it you know if it starts early at um, school level then you know, you get a greater likelihood that um, young adults will carry that into their um, political worldview. At the moment, that's hardly there. Um, I, I looked at a survey, a global comparative survey by Pew Research recently, I think it was from 2019 or 2020, and uh, Indonesia came down near the bottom out of 40 countries um, how they viewed climate change, whether they viewed it as a threat to the nation. And yeah, to, to see how few Indonesians seem to be aware of what climate change is doing and how it's damaging you know, to them, but you know, to the environment, to the whole world. Um, unless that changes, unless there becomes sort of greater levels of awareness from the bottom up, it would be, it would be difficult um, to, to, to change the dynamics. Let's, let's use that word. Thank you.